This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bear Boat Alaska, a pure DIY hunting game with one of their 37-foot adventure yachts. You and five of your friends can hunt, fish, set crab pots, shrimp pots, and take DIY to the next level. Bear Boat Alaska is locally owned by a Ketchikan resident who lives here year-round. Call Larry at 907-617-4542 or go to bearboatalaska.com. That's B-A-R-E boatalaska.com and tell larry you heard about it on this podcast this episode of the podcast is also brought to you by islander calls and creations bill and sarah yaki are lifelong residents of prince of wales island and their unique deer calls are built for blacktail hunting specifications check out their facebook page islander calls and creations to order yours today Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Chris Milgate, the CEO of Tightline Media, author of My Place Among Men and My Place Among Fish. And she was nominated for an Emmy for her film Ocean to Idaho about the 850-mile salmon migration from ocean from the ocean to Idaho. Thanks for being on here, Chris. Hey, thanks for asking me. Happy to talk with you. So that's pretty impressive uh, highlights. Um, as a teacher, I kind of want to know where people started or what they were like in high school when uh, they end up being successful. So high school English class when you were a senior, were you front row paying attention? Were you uh, back row doodling? <laughs> what were you doing? High school and still today, I am front row. I'm, I'm a teacher's pet. Like I, I'm short and I don't like people in front of me. And when I'm shooting video, I really don't like it. So when I'm in like a classroom setting, I'm front row and I get teased all the time for that. And I don't care because I want to, uh, absorb everything i'm mm-hmm. a lifelong learner so learning is what i enjoy and i find it interesting and so i was front row but i will say that at the same time i'm a lot different now mm-hmm. than i was when i was younger even though i'm still front row yeah i was i was painfully shy growing up <laughs> and i didn't look anybody in the eye and i was terrified of beards <laughs> and so now yeah, now I talk so much, I get I have swollen vocal cords, and I run around in the woods with beards all the time. So oh. a lot of things change, but the front row habit always stays. What uh, what helped you get over that that shyness, or, or build the develop the confidence to get through that? Because there's a lot of shy high school students that kind of I don't know build a wall or whatever. Well, I'm just shy, and that's just the way things are and the way they're going to be. So was there a moment? Was there a, something that you heard or something that you did that helped you break through that shyness? I always knew I was going to be a storyteller and I started to shed my shyness toward the end of junior high. Um, And it was a lot based on the fact that I knew what I was going to do. I was going to tell you a story when I grew up and I was going to have something to tell you. I just had to figure out how to be brave enough to look you in the eye and tell you, tell you a story. So I had to learn to sit with things that were uncomfortable, which was talking to strangers and hanging out with beards. And by doing those things throughout college and the beginning of my career, I became more comfortable with what's uncomfortable. And in a lot of situations, I can show up on a story and I may I may not be welcome there, but I've got to be able to sit with that to do my job. And I've always been able to write. I could write for any medium very early on. I've always enjoyed writing. I love playing with the alphabet in my head. When you're talking to me, I'll be mixing up the words that are coming out of your mouth. And so I knew that I could write and I needed to learn how to write for 
video and for photo, and I needed to learn how to talk with people in a way that made them feel comfortable to open up and tell me their secrets. Mm. So the, the storytelling aspect was always there. I just wasn't born with the skill set to do it right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. So it was a matter of, of work and opportunity. Did did you get um, the, the courses that you needed in high school to kind of set you along that path? That's always one of the things I'm thinking about as a teacher is how can I you know, get past this sort of general English, you know, and we're talking about Lord of the Flies and of Mice and Men and then graduate college, then you can figure out different areas. And so how I can better, you know, guide students along a path that's a little bit more uh, beneficial to them. Did, did your high school offer the classes that you needed to set you off into a journalism media uh, career? Mm, good question. So I did have an AP English and I did take it and I did well in that. But, um, my brain clearly works for that more artistic side. I'm a writer, not a mather. So mm-hmm. I, even in college, I took, my, <laughs> I took all my math classes in the summer at night school because it was easier nice. <laughs> so that I could pass. Mm-hmm. I, could, I would do great in all the other subjects, but math is not my strong point. And I have an accountant, and I talk to him often. <laughs> and that keeps my business <laughs> correct on the books. I played to my strengths and because I knew how to write, I made sure I took AP in high school. And then when I got to college, I did writing intensive classes. I had, I knew what my major was. I majored in broadcast journalism. I never wavered. I wasn't one of those students that kept changing. And I think that's almost a luxury. And I'm really grateful that I had such clear direction for, I knew what I was going to do and I wasn't going to change course. Mm -hmm. So I had writing intensive classes, which would be, kind of similar to how you do AP in high school, but it was the same class that everybody else was taking, but it had a lot more essay assignments and more writing structure to it. And I even remember classes like my first year of high school. uh, It was, we would take sentences and we would spend the whole class period making those sentences shorter. Mm. So when, when you look at my writing today, a lot of people will say, well, you know, you don't mince words. No, I don't. I don't waste words. I, I don't add fluff. And if I'm going to give you even 500 words, every single one of those words better matter because I've shortened the sentences so much that they are clean, precise, and there's no extra in there. Mm-hmm. I tell my, my, when my freshmen come in, one of the introduction things to, to writing is just they have this more is better. And yes. I wrote two pages. Oh man, that's that's probably going to be real bad. So just kind of get it, getting the <laughs> the idea that more does not make it better. A lot of times, it even makes it less clear. And so cutting and, and editing is such a being precise with the words, and then it's so good for um, kids who are filling out scholarship applications. And you know, if they don't want to go into writing, it doesn't matter because this this essay prompt or the scholarship prompt is four hundred words, and you like you said, everything has to has to matter, has to count. You have to articulate yourself very very well otherwise you're in trouble right and then if it becomes something that you want to do as a profession if i am asking you to dip into your wallet to buy my book if i'm cutting trees to print the paper to print my book if that all those things go into that i will better make sure that those words matter if i'm asking you to sit down and take the time to spend a few pages with what i have to say mm-hmm. it better matter so how long did it take you to write uh, My Place Among Men? Was it a book that was always kind of simmering under the surface that you were kind of crockpotting, I guess? Or was there a moment where you thought, all right, I have to write this book and I have to start it now? 
it's both. So it simmered and then it was now. But um, My Place Among Men is a collection of the most dynamic outdoor stories I've covered in the last two decades. Whether it's recovery of grizzly bears or it's wildfire, water wars, wolves. I mean, there's it runs the gamut as far as what I've, as what I've had to cover. And I was just going about doing my job for all these years. And then I started getting these speaking engagements where people would say, come and talk to my group. They're real curious about what you do. And I'd be on stage and I'd be talking about what I would do and then I'd say any questions. And the questions started becoming, what's it like to do your job? Everyone still wanted to know what it, why we call our grizzly bears <laughs> and why we want to follow them around and find out how they're doing in the ecosystem. But then they wanted to know what it was like to lay down on, on the forest floor nose to nose with a grizzly bear. And that's when it clicked with me. I realized people wanted to know more about my perspective. And when you're writing for news, I did not know how to put I in a news story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a gener- uh, motivated a lot by social media. They want that personal connection with people. Yes, they want your story. They want the facts. They want to know what the issue is. But then they want to know what it's like to stand in the middle of that issue. And so that's where I thought, hey, I've got two decades worth of stories here that have already published. What if I could learn how to insert I into those stories and produce a book? To me, I still doesn't belong in news. Mm -hmm. It belongs in a book. And in chapter form, I could take all those stories and then all of a sudden add in this new perspective on an issue that shows you what it's like when you're in the middle of the issue trying to cover it. Mm -hmm. And then, then it went really fast. I wrote and wrote and wrote and rewrote. And I had 15,000 words, one 5,000, which seems like a ton to me because I come from news. Right. And I turned it into my editor. She cut half of it out, sent me back (laughs) 8,000 words and said, dig deeper. It wasn't good enough. And I think that's a really important lesson there is you need to learn that if you're working with an editor, that really does their job well, and they make cuts, they are not hurting your feelings. They are making the content better. Mm-hmm. Go with it. You have to go with it. And somehow I made it to 50,000 words before I passed out. So <laughs> we got there. <laughs> nice. Uh, you've been a journalist on both sides of the proliferation of social media. So that has allowed a lot of people to tell their individual story, but they weren't necessarily storytellers first. Um, how have you seen the evolution of storytelling be impacted by the proliferation of social media and people? There's no gatekeepers anymore, really. Um, but is that necessarily a good thing? Oh, I love that question. Um, I just spoke at a high school this week, and they all wanted to know how to take better pictures with their phone. A few years ago, that would have mortified me. I don't take pictures with my phone and sell them, right? That's not I'm a pro, you know, you think all these things, but the reality is the camera on a phone takes a pretty decent picture. Uh And if I can teach those kids to use their eyes in a way that make it a more creative photo for them, that makes them stand out from what everybody else's phone does, then it's more than just a monkey pushing a red button. Uh And I think right now where where everyone thinks they can be the media Everyone thinks they can push that button. You're right. A monkey can push that button, but does it look like mine when they push it? Probably not. And that's what I have to fall back on. So I feel like it's fine for people to write. Everyone thinks they can pick up a pen and write. And I have at it. Everyone thinks they can push that button and take a picture or make a movie. Have at it. And then let's compare it and see the difference. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. If you cannot see the difference right away, I haven't done my job right. So I don't worry so much about what you would call amateurs trying to step on the toes of pros until I get to a point where we're talking about how I get paid for what I do. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it is a bit of a challenge because there is always, always someone in the shoot behind me that will do it for cheap or they will do it for free just to say they're published. Mm-hmm. And this, is, this isn't a hobby for me. This is my profession. This is how I feed my family. So I have to make money just like you make money in your real job while you do the side, side gig that is actually my real job. That is where the challenge comes in. Yeah. In the outdoor industry, there seems to be <clears> – <throat> There's a contingent of writers who were writers first or throughout the entire thing. And the way they can articulate the whole experience is much different than the very, the expert hunter who then became a writer or hunt, uh, expert angler who then became a writer. Um, and just makes me appreciate some of the, the classic writers in the, in the outdoor realm. Who did you read growing up or who's influenced you as a, as a writer creator? Who, uh, Dr. Seuss is my favorite author. <laughs> he is my by far my favorite author and it has a lot to do with his creative way of stringing words together he's playing with language i love that i do that all the time in my head and so yeah he would be my inspiration but what i find interesting about the comment about people doing something else and then turning into writers the one of the first things i say when i speak to a group is this I am not a fisherman who thinks it would be cool to tell stories. I'm a journalist who just happens to know how to fish. And there's a big difference. There's a lot of different things going on in the water. I may be in the river with you. I may be in waders at the same time as you. But you're holding a rod and I'm holding a camera. And I know I'm not there to fish. You may be there to fish and to play. I am there to shoot and video or photos and work. And that's a different mindset. And I don't get to pick up my rod until I'm done shooting, if that ever happens. And I certainly don't get to have a beer on the bank either. So there's a different discipline there. And it starts to show through your work. You know, uh, a gun editor. I was writing for a gun editor before I even owned a gun. (laughs) And it wasn't because I knew about guns. It was because everybody he had writing for him knew about guns, but didn't know how to tell a story. Mm. I know how to tell a story. And that makes the difference because I'm coming from a base of a, journalism background not i get a lot of calls from people that say hey i want to do what you do yeah it's not as glamorous as it looks trust me but they want to they want to do that because it looks like it'd be a cool job Mm -hmm. they don't realize all the facets that are in it that that are really uncool yeah (laughs) about pulling off a job like this and it can't be an afterthought it has to be your only thought After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, 
You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/waypoint. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who's kind of starting out um, in that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the um, have a backup plan, fallback plan. Teachers are notorious for saying, you know, have a fallback plan, have a couple of different career options or maybe things that you'd be interested in. But then also there's the no plan B. If there is no plan B, then nothing can look easier or as a way out. So uh, are you uh, have no plan B, go full full speed into it, or you have fallback plan? Where do you fall in that? Well, I think a lot of people come to me because they want this to be their plan and it is because they have no other plan. And then something comes along and they're out, right? Mm-hmm. When we're talking about what I do here, it's not that just that I'm a journalist. It's that uh, I'm a self-employed, small business, female-owned business. There's a whole bunch of different challenges that go with that. I'm a freelancer. And it's not as glamorous as being a free agent in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So I don't make the kind of money that <laughs> they make in the NFL when, they have, when they're a free agent, right? Yeah. I'm a freelancer. But long before I was a freelancer, I worked for everybody and their dog. Every newsroom in the country that paid pennies, I worked for them. And I learned to do every single job in that newsroom, even the jobs no one else wanted to do. And you know what? Now I know how to do all those jobs all by myself. I don't need a crew of 10. And I learned, I did, I did all the grunt work. People think that they can decide to do this kind of career as a freelancer and they need discipline but they also need experience. You don't come out the gate with nothing and become a freelancer. You've got, you've got to pay your dues somewhere. So for a decade, I worked under contract owned by TV stations around the country. And then I went freelance. Now I've been freelance 15 years. So I've owned me longer than the TV stations have owned me. And that's Mm. significant to me. Yeah. I love the idea of being able to do anything so you can qualify to do anything. Uh, it makes you more valuable and marketable. One of my former journalism students uh, in class, she said uh, she'd never need to know anything about sports. And so when we had these sports quizzes, <laughs> she said, oh, I don't need to know this, Lund. Obviously, she did very well, high achiever. And then she goes off, and in the first semester of college uh, newspaper writing, they promote her to managing editor because she's just way ahead of everything. Um, and then they send her to the uh, women's Division two Final Four for basketball. <laughs> and so she sends sends me an email, Lund, I'm sorry, I know, I know, I know, but I have no idea how to write basketball. Can you give me a tutorial? And I just said, I'm not going to say anything, Cheyenne. I don't need to, and, and helped her out. But that's such an important thing that I think a lot of people miss is that the more variety that you have, like you might specialize and you want to do this, but if you can also do all these other things, you just become that much more unfireable or hireable it just much more that much more indispensable yeah and i think the same thing happens say like even if you're a doctor 
Doctors go to school to be doctors. They don't go to school to be business owners. And then what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are business owners and they kind of flounder on that side of it. They have no, I don't really think there's a lot of business classes in med school. Same kind of thing. But on the flip side of that, when we go to family reunions, no one's asking the doctor for stitches, but they're all asking me for pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple times, and then, of course, the, the title of your book, My Place Among Men. Uh, how is this? I'm sure there's some observations that, that you have that um, uh, show that as a culture, as a society, we, have, we value women in these, in these spots, um, the, the, the skill, the craft, the ability. Um, but something my wife said stuck with me when she was earning her PhD, that she loved the people she worked with, she enjoyed the department, but there was still this idea that, or conception that men were better scientists, and so she had to had con- constantly battle that. Um, has there been some some things about battling through, or, or, or ridiculous things you've had to deal with because you are a woman and you're, and you're in this space? There's an endless list of ridiculous things that I deal with <laughs> in my profession, and I and I think that that kind of question comes up a lot, and I always try to think of some specifics quickly, and I draw a blank. And it isn't because there isn't a pile of them. It's because if I, if I fester and mm. obsess about every time I've been knocked down, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. So I have to kind of push them somewhere else. Things will kind of trigger in a certain situation, but I, but I have to look at what's going on and figure out how to work around it. You know, when I, when I approach any situation on assignment, I often walk into situations where I'm unwelcome and there's usually two reasons why it's either because I'm a woman or because I'm media and I have to figure out what's, what, what's the issue with this guy? Which one is it? Is it because I'm media and he doesn't trust me? There's a lot of that these days. Hmm. Or is it because I'm a woman and he doesn't want me in hunting camp? Once I figure out which one it is, I figure out how to work around it because he doesn't have to invite me there. He just has to let me be there. Mm-hmm. And then I can do my job. So uh, there's a lot of challenges. And I think that comes for women in general um, when they work in a male-dominated industry, which would be media. And then I even magnified my poor odds by adding outdoor to that. <laughs> so <laughs> the beginning of my career, I'd spend all day on the river and I wouldn't see another woman. And, it, and that was commonplace. I am encouraged by seeing that there, are, there is more of a female presence in the outdoors now than before we were always there we've always been there it was just a matter of what how many of us there were and i think that that's changing i think there's a lot of women that don't feel comfortable in the outdoors by themselves and i also think this mother nature doesn't care whether you're a man or a woman right it's it's the same beating for both the what you have to just figure out is how much discomfort you can tolerate and fortunately for me my tolerance for uncomfortable is extremely high mm-hmm. so i will i will be able to stay out there longer because what i'm doing matters that much to me but i won't give in mm-hmm. and i think a lot of times people won't like the discomfort and they'll bail out of the situation so i think things have gotten better but i still think we're a long way from equality in the outdoor space. Mm-hmm. That tolerance for discomfort, is that something that you grow <laughs> gradually over time? Or is it something that 
you just got a jump and sink or swim type thing. Uh, which one do you think is more effective or how did you develop that, uh, that mindset? <laughs> uh, as far as developing a tolerance for sitting in uncomfortable, there, the first thing you have to do is recognize there's a difference between uncomfortable and unsafe. I will not sit with unsafe, but I will sit with uncomfortable if I recognize there's a point to it. <laughs> there's a reason why I'm uncomfortable and there's a reason that I should stick with this. I'm stubborn. I won't give up, especially on a story. And I want to follow through. I'm persistent. Those things come into play when you're dealing with uncomfortable. The other thing that comes into play is, you know, that sink or swim. I've definitely sunk <laughs> several <laughs> times. And when I swim, it's because I sit with the uncomfortable long enough that I move past it. And the reason I can sit with it is because from a very young age, when I was painfully shy, that's a huge hurdle. That was meaning that meant that I wasn't going to be able to do the career that I wanted. And so I had to get over that. Mm -hmm. And that took a bunch of practice to get over that. Even still sometimes today, when I'm on stage, my lip, my, I get Elvis leg a little bit. <laughs> my, one leg, my one leg shakes a little. And that what happens on live shots too. And I think it's the shyness coming down through my leg because on TV for live shots below your waist doesn't show. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So what, um, <clears throat> what type of like stories are you looking at or working on? Actually, we can just talk about the one that you're working on now. I saw that you posted as you were coming out from filming about grizzlies, there was a sign <laughs> that, uh, there was a grizzly around. Is that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. On yes. the, on the, you're so, on the other side of the orange, the the cone. I like that. I came, I came out. I was coming out. I had been backing this trail, shooting fall footage. There was elk bugling. Um, it was a little bit stormy. I mean, the colors were just popping, and I knew darn well that I was in grizzly country. That's not, that's no surprise to me. I had bear spray. I was paying attention. You know, when you're getting your footage and you're bent over the lens you kind of forget what's at your back i have spent all summer looking over my back before i bend over my lens and so i knew where i was i was there for a reason it's fall i wanted to see you know what i could get in fall footage and i had a bunch of bears playing in spring but i wanted fall and there was there were no bears but i was in i was in the area well i came back out and there was a cone at the trail and i was like wait a minute I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have just walked past a cone. That that wasn't there before. And what is all that noise? Why do I hear all these car doors shutting? I'm the, I was the only car in the parking lot. Sure enough, the ranger had come into the lot, put a closed cone on the trailhead because a grizzly bear was coming through. And so basically I was ahead of the bear jam. I went from being the only car there to being smothered by a million people that were acting like the paparazzi over this bear. And I thought, ooh, do I turn around and go back because I'm going to get a way better shot if I go back where I was? Or, or do I hurry and run around this corner and act like I wasn't back there because you're not supposed to be back there? Mm -hmm. So I, I decided to just be up front, which usually works well for me. I don't beat around the bush. And I went right up to the ranger and I said, hey, uh, I was back there and you closed that trail. He's like, I wondered why you were coming. You were on the other side of the cone. And I said, yeah, I was back there shooting footage. And he said, 
guess I better check the chair, the trail next time before I close it and make sure everyone's out. Did you bring everybody out with you? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And I was like, yeah, there's no one else back there. But yeah, that, that, uh, that's a little bit of complacency right there. Right. Yeah. There was someone back there and they closed it and didn't think to check the trail. I don't, I, I think they lose track of how many people are in how many cars yeah. that can happen quickly in a situation like that. But the bear came through. I saw, it's not my best footage, but I saw her. Huh. What's, uh, what's this story? Is it, uh, specific to what was it? What's the angle on this one? On grizzly ground follows close on the hills of ocean to Idaho. On ocean to Idaho, I followed salmon migration from Oregon, Oregon coast to the Idaho wilderness, 850 miles by river. And I did it during the pandemic. So it was risky because of the time that humanity was sitting in. Mm-hmm. We were trying to avoid everybody being sick. It was a pretty remarkable trip. That film premiered the night it premiered in August of 2021. The first question the audience asked me is what's next. And I knew that they wanted more. And I knew that they liked this style of storytelling where I show you what it's like to be on the road for a summer. And then I bring you a film from what I shot when I was on the road for that summer. So I started thinking about what would be next. And and I, I chose grizzly bears and I chose grizzly bears for a lot of reasons. I live in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Grizzly bears are expanding in this ecosystem and people are not catching up. And I, there's a lot of things that have to change as far as how we behave in order for the bears to continue to be here, or it's just going to be a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. There are certain places they will never be like in cities, but the problem is, is we all leave the cities to go play where they live. Right. So, I wanted to look at, with salmon, it was a disappearing fish and what's it like for it to make its way home with us in the way, and that includes fishing and dams and power and farms. With grizzly bears, instead of a disappearing animal, we have an animal that is increasing. And what's it like when the wild tries to make its way with us in the way, with the caveat that this is risky not because it's a pandemic, it's risky because a grizzly bear can kill me. Mm-hmm. That factor wasn't in play with salmon. And everyone was worried about my safety. I know better. I understand that I can do this story without having to be in a grizzly bear's face every day. That is not smart. I have gone nose to nose with a grizzly, but it was asleep on drugs, getting a collar put around its neck. That's a whole different situation than running into the woods (laughs) and surprising one. And so I knew how to go about it without putting myself at risk, but also recognizing that every time I was in the woods, I'm at risk, just like anybody is in an ecosystem that hosts grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm really excited yeah. for, for that. That's that's good. It's wonder- been a good summer. And that film will, I, I just finished shooting the last piece of it uh, on Sunday. And I'll edit over the winter and the film comes out in summer 2023. How is that editing process? Because I'm sure you have days worth of of film (laughs) is there do you have to stay fresh because if you start to get tired and make tired editing decisions you have to go back and redo it so how do you how do you go and approach that editing process the most important thing to recognize in the editing phase is when you're done and there's a lot of moments when you're done and when you're done you better check out because it's going to take you 10 times as long to edit two minutes than it should and they're going to be a week two minutes You do not want a a single weak minute inside of a whole film. So when you're feeling that you're starting to check out and you're like, I got to stay and grind this out some more, 
you're going to you're becoming counterproductive so step away uh with salmon i had 20 25 hours of footage to shove into a 26 minute show that doesn't work right that's a lot of stuff on the floor so the first stuff that goes are my mistakes the crap footage doesn't make it there's always mistakes no matter how long you shoot there's something there that you're never going to use because you didn't shoot it right and you start to whittle down things interviews get a lot cut as well because of time and sometimes people their comments don't make make enough sense but maybe later on they said it right so you can whittle things down but 25 hours of footage shoved into 26 minutes is a huge feat and it takes a long time you have to be patient with yourself you have to give it the time i am no longer turning two minute news stories for a 10 o'clock newscast so i cannot turn a whole film in one day that's just not acceptable so you have to recognize that and step away you also have to recognize when you're in the groove when you're in the groove and things are flying and the, every, the shots are falling into place perfectly and you're hitting the music beats just right, stay with it. It might be two in the morning, but stay with it. You'll get a lot more accomplished when you're in the groove than when you're trying to put yourself in the groove. Mm-hmm. Is that the same when you're editing writing or is it uh, similar, different a little bit? It is the same when I'm writing for a, a print story, yes. And I'm finding that uh, it was the same with my son. He's writing an essay right now, and he's struggling with a word he's using. And I said, it's not coming to you. You know, you've just spent an hour trying to fix one word. Let it sit, sleep on it. You'll get it in the morning. The other thing I do to get myself going if I'm struggling with writing especially is I get in the tub. (laughs) The tub is this place where I can close my eyes, and I get a lot accomplished because it clears my head. Mm-hmm. And I'll sort things out. And I'm notorious for having notes everywhere. There's a notepad on my nightstand by my bed. I will make notes when I'm running trail. I will make notes in my closet. I will make notes when I'm in the tub. There's all kinds of places where I can shut out distractions and things will open up and everything will make sense and then it will fly. And I wait. Sometimes you have to wait for those moments. But when they come to you, you better recognize them because they won't stay. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've dreamt about something or thought about something i didn't write it down i woke up in the morning and it's gone yes and I, I never thought i didn't want to get out of bed to write it down because oh there's no way that i would forget this this is a great idea for a column and then i totally forget it yep write it down write it down right away yeah well that was a great uh closer um for uh, for this here podcast, I know that uh, you're heading out uh, to go hunting. But I, I am a little bit curious about uh, your your hunting trip this weekend. So, uh, what's what's on the on the plan? I have fished fly fish specifically for decades. I enjoy standing in the water. I like moving water, not still water, and I enjoy the places that fishes choose to live. The difference with what I'm doing this year is pretty dramatic in that I'm still fly fishing. But I've decided to start hunting. And I think what's crazy is for how many decades I have shot footage of an animal. And I have shot that animal for footage and never for food. And I need to be able to keep moving my body. I have multiple sclerosis and my legs need to keep moving. And I've only had it for a year that I've known. And so my therapist says, listen, I want you to, your life is an extreme high and you need to keep moving. Your body is used to that movement. Keep doing your job. Keep running trail. Keep doing everything you do as long as you're still moving. And don't call it exercise. 
So I thought, fine, I know how to, I know how to follow an animal with a lens. What if I try upland bird hunting? And I'm walking miles looking for upland birds so that I can make sure my legs keep moving. And I'm also learning something new and I'm also feeding my family. And so I can come up with grouse, um, sharp-tailed grouse. I, I figured out where I thought they might be and sure enough, they were there. And I don't even have a dog, but they flushed and I fed my family that night. And I like that idea. And I like that I have to keep moving to do it. So I researched out guns. I bought my own shotgun. I have an over-under. And I liked learning all of those details about the process. And at the same time, moving for more than exercise. Mm -hmm. That motivates me. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. That's, uh, well, not the situation, of course, but uh, the very inspiring. I appreciate uh Appreciate hearing that. Um, any pitch for what you have coming out? Where can people find uh, you, follow you, um, your books, films? Yes, thank you for asking. How do you find me? On social media, it's Chris Milgate. And on all platforms, that's what I use, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not on Twitter as much, Facebook and Instagram, because I really like that visual medium. If you want to see films, buy books, see more of what I'm working on, which is plenty at all times. I like to be over busy. That makes me feel comfortable. Go to my website, tightlinemedia.com. Excellent. Thank you very much. I really appreciate all that you've done and are doing and um, giving me a little bit of time here to, to chat with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too.